you can put all these safeguarding measures in place, but you shouldn't have to. The conversation should be, how do we treat everybody with decency and respect and respect people's boundaries and give them the opportunity to make those boundaries? Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. Today's guest, Addie Delaney, recently gave a TED Talk about consent, and rightly so, it had over a million views. Why? Because she comes at it from a unique perspective. It's at the intersection of her three roles, directing a community circus program, teaching consent with a sexual harm prevention perspective, and as a multidisciplinary performer. This is a powerful conversation, and you will quickly learn that regardless of your gender identity or age, this episode is for you. And you will quickly learn that consent is beyond consenting about whether or not to have sex. So instead of me even trying to explain it, let's listen to this conversation with Addie, who comes to us from Australia. Before we dive into this topic of consent, um, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you also got into becoming a sexual harm prevention educator? You have a really broad, interesting background to have brought you to this space. So I do. <laughs> I do. And I guess, so the short version is I'm in the middle of three siblings, three girls, and I was the only child that my parents kept on a leash. I loved running around and climbing things and jumping off high things and trying to fly. But my mum is a physiotherapist and she noticed that when I was four, I couldn't touch my toes and that was concerning to her. So she enrolled me in gymnastics, which I absolutely loved, but did not have a natural aptitude for and didn't really enjoy the competitive side of it. So... I continued in gymnastics all the way through school, also didn't really enjoy school, didn't take to that um, and spent most of my time just waiting to go to the gym. Yeah, then mum found there's a circus university in Melbourne in Australia and she was like, hey, you should go do this thing. And I was like, yes, I should. Thank you. Um, that's that's pretty much it. She found the circus school. I auditioned I got in I went straight from the end of school into that got a degree in circus arts and then traveled the world I just started performing circus and doing that I spent a decent amount of time in Europe about a decade touring Europe with a number of circuses and flying trapeze companies I felt the call back home in my late 20s I also had an injury that needed some attention and I knew that it wasn't really feasible to work full-time as a performing artist here in Tasmania where I'm from. So uh, my partner and I decided to give this side of the world a shot, came down, had some hip surgery. I opened a circus school and was just looking for something to fill that void really. Um, I was, I was pretty done with performing full-time as a freelance artist. Um, but, yeah, I was looking for something else to challenge me, to push me. I wanted to learn again. And I made friends with someone who worked at a sexual assault support service. And they had just started this training department where they were going out into the community and educating people on sexual harm prevention. And we're looking for people to join the team. So... I interviewed um, entirely 
QBE, as I call it, qualified by experience, mm. and just sort of reflected on my work as um, working with young people using circus as a tool for social change. And they saw those skills as applicable and transferable, and they were absolutely right. I did a very intense year of training and learning all about sexual harm and how to communicate about those issues. And that's what I do. I go into schools mostly and I talk to young people, um, but I work with entire communities, so parents and staff and teachers. And, yeah, that holistic approach is really important to preventing sexual harm from happening in our communities. What you're doing with it and, and spreading the word through the TED Talk and I'm sure many, many other avenues, um, I'm, I'm so grateful. And, you know, I, I think when we go through these challenges in life and having to make these big decisions and our lives may not go on the path that we hope, they often turn into these amazing things that we offer to the world. And so kudos to you. And I'm so glad you found this. Yeah, that certainly happened for me. <laughs> yeah. And I think drawing the parallel between my two jobs is really what draws people's attention is what circus can teach us about consent. And the way that I started seeing that was I, I felt that what I was saying to students in schools was what I was role modeling and demonstrating in my circus classes. And so the crossover started there and just started integrating parts of both into both. So now the circus school that I run is proudly trauma-informed and all of our trainers at the circus school go through training in how to empower and talk to young people. And wow. the work I do at SAS, we include some circus games to make it fun and accessible and not confronting and all of these other things. So tell us more. I mean, since you since you brought up this integration, because you know, I know I have lots of questions for you, and I assume either you're already going to answer them, or I'll have prompts if if we don't get to them. Um, so since you brought up this integration, tell us um, more about what you're seeing with this education that you're providing the young girls. Like, what have been some of these aha moments? that you're having um, by having these conversations at such a young age around understanding one's body and understanding yes, no, things like that? It really depends on the age of the child. We, it's age appropriate. And the way that we do that is that it's facilitated discussion. So we give prompts to the class. They respond to those prompts and then we talk about the content based on where they're at with their understanding and their current curiosity level, I guess. So one thing I do want to say is that we work with everyone. So um, all genders, we don't do class segregation. We think it's really important for people to have these conversations among themselves with no hangups about, I mean, gendered stereotypes has, has been identified as one of the main drivers of sexual harm. So very important to make sure that people can have conversations within their communities. Um, so what am I seeing? I guess the biggest aha moment for me and things that I pass on a lot is that you can't teach consent, which I realise is ironic coming from a consent educator, but it's the hill I'll die on. You can't teach consent. You can't walk into a classroom or tell kids, this is what consent is, this is how it works, off you go and do it. 
it has to be role modeled it has to be shown and it has to be embodied in every interaction that we have with anyone not just young people but it's not something that we have done in the past so while we have this superficial understanding of what consent is and how it's supposed to work we don't actually do that or show that particularly to young people and the example I give for that is we tend to offer choice where there is none and we tend to not offer choice where there should be some for example and I'm a culprit of this as well, I'll say, do you want to get in the car? We have to go now. We have to go now. There's not a choice about getting in the car. So when I present it like a choice and the kid doesn't want to get in the car and they say no, I then have to disrespect that and show them actually your no didn't mean no because I was going to do it anyway. So things like that where we can be more clear with what, we're saying and yeah offering choice where there can be choice really or at least providing enough information so that young people can be informed about the decisions that they are participating in or the decisions that are being made on their behalf so that's a big aha moment is (laughs) that you can't teach it you know, after I emailed you a cup, um, some suggested questions, I started thinking more about this and, and you almost just said it here, which is where is, I think when a lot of us think consent, it's consent related to sexual interactions, what, whatever degree they may, they may be. Right. But, you know, I, I, mm. I thought a lot about this and, and I'm curious what you think. I, I had um, some chal- a lot of stuff going on and I finally just had my moment where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And so I was able to, fortunately through my work, take a month off. One of the things that I uncovered about myself is I realized I don't set boundaries. And, and it, part of it is I didn't know. Like I would often try to figure out like if I should make decisions even to like go to an event or not. I, I just, I was so stressed and overwhelmed. I couldn't even hear my body tell me. And I forgot I had intuition. And we hear so often how trust your intuition and we don't often even trust it. And having that quiet helped me recognize that I didn't even have the capacity, ability, knowledge, skill, whatever you want to call it, to listen to me. And I let the entire world's rules and guidelines and checklists define who I was. And I reached a breaking point. And so as I was thinking about consent, and you even said it's like it's it's everywhere. So when we get into those hard positions, it's not as hard to stand up for ourselves. And so I'd love to get your reaction to that because it's it's like it's it's a complicated process. And you're right. It's not a course. Here's how you do it. This is the uh, the other aha moment is that everyone is the authority on their own experience, including us. But we're not taught that and we're not encouraged to think that. And you're right, we're not taught to listen to our intuition and to trust ourselves and to set our own boundaries. None of us do that. (laughs) And so it is hard. It is really hard when we get to intimate situations and then we want to start doing it because we're not practiced in it. We haven't tried it before. We haven't done it where the stakes are low. So we get to where the stakes are really high and yeah, it's impossible, which makes perfect sense. So when I say everyone is the authority on their own experience, I'm normally saying that to parents or school teachers who work with young people, 
but it is important to recognize that for ourselves as well because the way that we respond to someone's experience is not going to be the way that they would or did respond to what happened to them. There's a, here's a story that I used to explain what I'm talking about here. In circus, we used the silks, the aerial fabric that hang from the roof. And I was teaching a six-year-old to do this for the first time. So we're holding on with our hands and all we're doing is lifting our feet up off the floor to hold some body weight. Thought it was going great. So I turn around, I help someone else, I look back and then he's on the crash mat underneath wailing, sobbing, full fetal position tears. I have no idea what's happened. I go over and it turns out that he's got a cramp in his pinky finger. And so me, a very experienced adult, immediately wants to go, oh, it's just a cramp. You're fine. You'll be okay. You're okay. How many times have we said Mm -hmm. that? You're okay. But that's not his reality. He doesn't know where this pain has come from. He doesn't know how long it's here for. It's a pain he's never felt before. He doesn't understand why it's happening. So that's entirely unfair of me to say that he's okay because he's not. It's not what he's experiencing in that moment. So I caught myself and luckily I was able to say, well, actually, that's your muscle still holding on, even though you've already let go. So does it help if you stretch it out like this? And, you know, we worked through that and was able to provide some education around what was happening. But in that moment that I caught myself, I started realizing all the other times in my life where I say that to other people because I'm projecting my perceived response on their experience. So yeah, it doesn't matter how old we are or where we come from or any of those other demographics, everyone is the authority on their own experience. No, that that is true. But we're not taught to recognize that in ourselves. So that's the tricky thing. And the cheat sheet that I use for myself as well, because I also have that problem where I'm like, I've said yes to this thing and I'm agreeing to it, but I don't actually know if that's because I want to, because ultimately when it comes to intimacy in ourselves, that's the only reason we should agree to something is because we want to. But yeah, I catch myself and I'm, I don't know if I'm agreeing because I want to or because I'm feeling pressure that I can't articulate from somewhere. So the cheat sheet that I give myself is that I imagine what it would be, what would happen if I said the opposite. So if I'm saying yes, I do a thought experiment of me saying no. And if that doesn't feel possible, then the yes can't be a real yes. If people can't say no, they can't say yes. I'd love to share this example because as you were talking about the little boy who fell, I'm thinking about another instance. And I just think this is so fascinating around culture dynamics and, you know, how things have escalated with the the Harvey Weinstein and Me Too movement and all this stuff. I was dating this guy in college and we still stay in touch here and there. And he contacted me and he says, you know, remember my nephew who was so quiet and shy when he went to school, they did the eye test And I guess back then, that's, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but I guess I have to say back then. (laughs) Um, He he got his eye test, I guess, late in life for whatever reason. And they realized he was almost blind. And he got glasses and like became a different kid. Now, remember, he is a little kid who was born a certain way. And to him, that is his reality. So he didn't have the words 
to say, I can't see, because to him, that was normal. There's no point of difference. There was no differentiation. And, you know, I find this with my son, too, is I make lots of mistakes in assuming things. And I, I try so hard to say to him, honey, I'm not you. And I need to hear from you how you're feeling and try to explain it as best as you can. Or I'll try to, like, probe and ask questions because I, I just think of that story all the time. And I think it applies here too, is like if things are normalized, like this is how, you know, XYZ person should be, then that makes it also challenging. And if we don't have the tools, like I hear this also with, um, within the healthcare, I mean, I interview all these healthcare experts and the new hashtag in healthcare is medical gaslighting. And we women aren't taught about our bodies, so we don't even know how to stand up because we don't even know what to call anything. Half the people, actually, I think it's like 90% of women can't even point out their vulva when you go to show them the female anatomy. So, like, this is, I mean, that's why I wanted to talk to him. Like, this is such a big topic. This is not, <laughs> let's have an instructional guide from Addie on when you're in a sexual situation, how you <laughs> give consent, because this is like in everything in our life. Yeah. And it can't start when we're talking about sexual intimacy. That's way too late. Yeah. We have to see it before. But I I guess what you're tapping into there as well is the other big side of this conversation, which is that there's a responsibility and we actually can't do this for ourselves. We have to, as a community, do this for other people so that those ideas of autonomy are reinforced. Like a kid can't go or no one can go around saying my body is my own because that's not true unless people respect their space and show them that their body is their own. So yes, we do all have a lot of responsibility and that comes in the way that we phrase questions and asking, does this person genuinely have an option to say yes or no? It happens all the time. I get to practice this all the time. I, you ask questions with an outcome that you intend because otherwise you wouldn't be asking the outcome. So it's really important for the question asker to be clear that it's okay for whatever answer and to respect that answer and to go with that. An example that happened to me the other day is I went into an organization I used to work in and the coffee machine was on. There just wasn't anyone there making coffee. So I wanted to just jump around behind the counter and make a coffee like I'd done for years. But the person there didn't know who I was. And so I explained to them who I was and I was like, it's totally fine. I've done this a million times. I'll just pop out there, make a coffee. I'll sort it out with the person on Monday. And I could just see that they were really uncomfortable with it. So that's on me. I have to be like, don't worry about it. Never mind. It's not a big deal. And I left because yes, I did want a coffee. I did want to jump the counter and make it and it wouldn't have been a big deal. But I was making them uncomfortable because they didn't want to say no. So I have to recognize that. That is a good example. And be like, it's okay for you to say no. (laughs) What age range of children are you working with? Or are you working with adults as well? Um, We work with school populations. So we're generally starting with kids sort of eight years old-ish. But I do this work with every person in the world (laughs) that I talk to (laughs) every interaction you have with anyone you know I've got babies in my life and you can practice consenting role modeling with them that is true just you know 
putting your arms out and if they lift their arms they want to come up that's how it works and if they don't have a choice I'm going to lift you up now here we go and that already is just letting them know that they're entitled to know what's happening to their body uh, but yeah eight, about eight years old in schools and we talk about intimacy and which essentially is just any action that makes us feel close to someone else. So we talk about hugs and holding hands and playing games with our friends and sitting next to them at lunchtime and sharing secrets with them and then how those things make us feel or how those things should make us feel and how they can make us feel. We talk a lot about feelings and relationships. So how does one handle, like, um, you know, I, you're right. This is really about what is our own experience in the situation. But I think a lot of times, I mean, in many cases, like you even have been saying, we're not necessarily taught that that's okay. And so how does one where we have this world where we're all trying to get used to setting boundaries, giving ourselves permission to speak up, I mean, it's this is just complex, and there's a long way we have to go. I think, like, the Me Too movement and others have accelerated a lot of this, but <laughs> long ways to go still. Um, so what tips would you have in these very nuanced situations, like when you're in it? So now you're we're, we've talked about the prep of it's really start with the small things, start with the easy things, so once you're in it. But then once you're in it, it can be hard because nothing is black and white. Plus we're all still learning about having agency over our bodies, mm. ourselves, our time, our minds, everything that we do not set boundaries with now. Yeah. And it is tricky. I think what's really important is actually understanding what the definition of consent is. Cause I don't think a lot of people do know. I deliver an hour and a half training just on consent because <laughs> I can talk about it for hours. It's not permission. Permission is different. Permission is transactional. And the way that we talk about consent, it makes it sound transactional. It actually makes it sound like an object. So we have to change our language around consent. And I have been using consent in this interview, but more often than not, I will refer to whether or not we are consenting because when we say things like, I have consent, I got consent, I gave consent, it does make it sound like an object that we've passed to someone and that they possess from us, separate to us. And that is not correct. It's not accurate. It's reversible. It's ongoing, which means that someone can only ever be consenting in the moment that the thing is happening. And that becomes a whole lot easier when we're informed about what we're agreeing to so that's where those pre-conversations come in and those check-ins so for example in a sexual situation you've had a conversation about what you're into what you're interested in what you're definitely not keen on what you're not sure about but you're keen to try that kind of stuff so that when you are in the act of being intimate sexually with someone, they have a decent idea of where you might be feeling about what is currently happening. And if you are doing something that you were like, I love that more than anything, come at me, then they're going to be reading your body language and all of those other things and be relatively comfortable and safe in knowing that you're okay and getting all of that feedback. But if it's something that you've said, like, I'm super keen to try, that sounds great. 
they're, they're going to be a little bit more attentive and checking in and being like, seems like you're still cool with this. Like, you know, those kind of check-ins. And obviously, like, I can't give scripted examples because every single person is an individual. But that's why it's really important to have clear, explicit conversations and get comfortable with those so that by the time we are sexually intimate with people, that's normal and that does feel comfortable. And actually the lack of, the lack of that would be a red flag. So that's the key thing. We use the acronym FRIES in our education program, which is freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic and sober. The E, the enthusiastic, yes, I think enthusiasm is a really good indicator that someone is agreeing to something. And I think it's particularly helpful when we're talking about sexual experiences, but that's one very small example where we're consenting. So more often than not, I like to think about the E as explicit, explicit communication, because I think that speaks to the nuance of consent. And there's also times where we're consenting to things like medical procedures because we understand the outcome and the consequences and we want to participate in those things. The best example I can give for that is a tattoo. I don't necessarily want to sit through three hours of my skin being drilled, but I do want that tattoo. So absolutely, I'm agreeing to that. Sign me up. (laughs) So yeah, the freely given part, we actually spoke about that already when we were talking about if someone can't say no, they can't say yes. But under that, there's also so much room to talk about power dynamics and power dynamics being fluid and changing and coming from all sorts of different place. Like there's social power, there's informational power, there's so many ways that people might have more power than someone else in a situation that might influence their decision or their ability to say yes or no. The R is reversible, which I was just talking about, needing to happen in the moment. The I is informed, which is talking about things beforehand, understanding what you're agreeing to, also debriefing afterwards. The E, enthusiasm or explicit. And then S is sobriety, which we could talk more about that if you like. But (laughs) I mean, it's pretty obvious why people can't be consenting when they're under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Yes. So it's funny because my brain is like permission versus consent. I, I'm like, they're different. I, like in some ways I understand how they're different. And in others, I know. my brain is like. <laughs> I'm sorry. It is a bit of a bombshell. And because uh, frustratingly, when you Google definition of consent, you get the word permission, but it's the second hill I'll die on. <laughs> it's, there's, we have a different word for it because it is different. I personally do not believe that people can sign a consent form. It's not a consent form. It's a permission form. It is only consent when we are agreeing to something to do with our physical bodies and our emotional health. So like the power dynamics, um, you know, the, the social and some of these others that you were bringing up, maybe you can highlight some not so obvious examples so we can get just how pervasive this is. I'll give you a couple of examples. One example is a hypothetical couple of people that hook up. So they might be uni students. They might be in a town. They like each other. They meet each other through classes. They go on a date. Um, One of them is from that town. The other person is not. So they go out to this party and 
everyone there is known to one of the people in that partnership. So who's got more power in that situation? Potentially is the person who knows the city, who knows the venue, who knows the people around them. The person who's hanging out with them has to make all of these connections. They don't necessarily know where the bus routes are if they want to leave. So there's a potential power dynamic there. However, if that other person is totally loaded and they are buying all the drinks all night, that creates a dynamic. There's the potential for someone to feel indebted to that person because they've been buying them drinks all night, they've been having a great time, they paid this VIP club fee, whatever, I don't know. I don't know what people do when they go out at night anymore. That's not my jam. Then they go back to uni accommodation and then uni accommodation is what it is. There's not a lounge room. They go back to someone's room and there's one place to sit and that one place to sit is the bed. That says something. That creates an assumption, a dynamic. What if that person chooses not to sit on the bed? What are they saying then? And you see what I mean? Like the power dynamic and who holds the power in any given situation can change depending on where they are and who they're with and all of these other things. We often talk to young people about online stuff. Obviously, it's a huge issue. And the informational power that people hold. So when you've been friends with someone for a long time, they know lots of things about you. You might have said things to them that you wouldn't say to someone else. And so that affects how you behave around them, knowing that ultimately if they wanted to, they could tell people things about you that you don't want other people knowing. Same with intimate partnerships. They send pictures to each other and maybe that relationship goes a bit sour, but your ability and your willingness to have a conversation about the future of that relationship is heavily affected by knowing that they have images of you, that if they are not happy, legal or not, they can do things with those images. So whether or not they threaten to do that, just knowing that that is a possibility affects our ability to participate in decisions freely. So let's say we've gotten ourselves into one of these situations. Because I think a lot of us have been in them and there's kind of while you're in it, how do you get out of it? Because we're still all, all unlearning these terrible behaviors. So the getting out of it is one. And then the shame after. Well, we can never control other people's actions. Right. So we can never guarantee how someone's going to behave. But this is like, unfortunately, yes, I work for a sexual assault support service so we do work on that end of things and we work on the reactionary end of things sometimes where we are dealing with what to do in less ideal situations and circumstances but ultimately my work is in primary prevention so I'm about changing things so this stuff doesn't happen and that is that collective responsibility that I was talking about because Sure, we can talk about like making sure so-and-so, whoever, whatever doesn't have access to your number and people know where you are and you can put all these safeguarding measures in place, but you shouldn't have to. That shouldn't be the conversation. The conversation should be how do we treat everybody with decency and respect <laughs> and, and respect people's 
boundaries and give them the opportunity to make those boundaries. And we are living in, I don't normally say this word in training, but we are in a patriarchy and that negatively affects everybody. And these gendered stereotypes put social pressure on people to behave in certain ways. And particularly men and boys, there are these sexpectations, these unspoken rules that the man is the instigator and he's supposed to essentially harass a woman and she's supposed to say no she's supposed to play hard to get and this social script creates harm unfortunately so yeah we need to empower boys and men to be emotional and to have open conversations and respectful conversations so that they also have experiences that are fulfilling and joyful and not confusing because they're scared to ask questions because it might show weakness and vulnerability. So yes, what can we do to keep ourselves safe is entirely the wrong question. And what can we do to create a culture where people feel comfortable to set their own boundaries? I genuinely can envision a world where where boundaries are respected so much that people then feel empowered to go, I really want this. And that enthusiasm can start to come through and people will trust it and know that it is coming from a genuine place. You know, I think about these young kids because I'm, you know, trying to be involved in the school system here where my son's at. And, you know, we're hearing so much, and this is in the media too, it's that, we're in a crisis. And as I'm listening to you, I'm like, is this the way to start getting through it? Is we focus on consent full stop. And it is everywhere. Because I think if it's almost like if we have the language in the foundations of being true to ourselves and being confident, I feel like it makes things so much easier to deal with. Like I find for me, when I, like right now, I'm in very much like boundary mental health mode and I feel so much more empowered to stand up for myself because I now have the tools and it took a month of me getting to know myself again. And I'm just wondering if, if we really work on this in all the schools around the globe, that that is really where the change happens. And it's great that you're doing it. Do you know how widespread this kind of... I certainly think consent education is the answer to pretty much everything. Yeah, um, that's what I'm hearing. Honestly, I think when you when you view <laughs> when you view our social problems through the lens of of genuinely understanding to our core what it means to be consenting and to give other people that option, it is really really helpful. Unfortunately, when you do understand what consenting is, you it clicks that you can't do that online because you cannot agree in the moment that something is happening. So when we're talking about image sharing and putting information online, we are talking about giving other people permission to use our content. And it's passive permission because that's the assumption. As soon as something is online, it exists somewhere in the public realm and we do not have control over that anymore. So it's not reversible. It's not ongoing. We don't we're not informed about where our content is or who's using it or what's happening to it. I think that the best way forward is for 
adults to have trust in their young people, but to have really open communication. So things like, so that that phone is not a private space because the internet is not a private space. So I don't mean that parents should be trawling through their kids' phones and messages with their friends. Um, some parents do that. And I think that there's a way that you can do that. That's fine. And it's things like, what is Snapchat? How does it work? Show me how you use it and get excited about it with them so that they want to show you how they're using their phone and, and you keep up to date with the apps that they're using and how they're using them. And so that they are comfortable with you checking in and also comfortable knowing that you might read things that they've been sending to their friends. And hopefully so that when, when something happens that is not okay, they talk to you and they flag that and they're like, this is new, this is uncomfortable, this is weird, I don't like it. And they will go to their parent and say, what is this? This is not okay. Help me out of this instead of building a further layer of secrecy around it. Because a lot of what we see in schools is kids not disclosing actual sexual harassment and abuse online because they were on an app that they weren't allowed to be on or weren't supposed to be on. How does one triple check that everything's okay without trolling? Like, again... There aren't black and white. It's all fine lines. So how how does that work if there's concern? You just got to name it up, I guess. I'm concerned about this and I want to look through your phone. I'm going to look through your phone. I'm happy for you to sit here while I do that and we can talk about what... Because I'm worried that someone might be taking advantage of you. I'm worried that it might be negatively affecting your mental health. I want to make sure that... You can continue to be happy using your phone, like any of these things, but just naming it up. Like I get these questions all the time where parents are like, I'm worried about my kid doing this. What do I do? I'm like, tell them you're worried about this. (laughs) (laughs) Just tell them. (laughs) Remember, they're the authority on their own experience. So you do not know how they're thinking and feeling about this. You might have an idea, you might have a clue, you might have an assumption, but you don't know. So ask them and they will appreciate that. And they, well, obviously I can't speak for everyone, but they're much better on the internet than I am. And that I think is a really good thing to come from a place of curiosity, being like, I'm really worried about that app because I don't know how it works. Will you explain it to me? What do you like about it? What's the appeal here? Yep. The theme in all the examples that we've given is it sounds like we start with the foundations of educating or like understanding who we are, right? And then having infer- like modeling for our children, modeling for each other as humans so that we can be more impactful, right? Like what, what else would you like to say to that? The keys that can help us are things like hang on, I need a minute. (laughs) And actually better, seems like you need a second. I'll wait. Like what a, what a great tool. (laughs) Like, or like, are you sure? Like, I think the cheat sheet I give people, um, because I am more about it's the responsibility rather than us exercising our right, because we can't exercise our right unless we're given the opportunity to from others 
is time and choice. Those two things, they're kind of the keys. If you're not sure if someone is consenting, give them more time, give them more choice where possible. I also, I would love to add to that too, is like asking more questions. Like, and I'm talking even in s simple situations. Like I walk away and I'm like, I was, I was talking mm. at someone. Why didn't I just ask a couple questions? <laughs> Why didn't I pause? Let them talk more. <laughs> yeah, I've even followed up actually, because this, I'm, no, I'm not perfect at this. I'm okay at it, but yeah, I make mistakes and I always, sometimes I catch myself and I sent an email to someone the other day because we were, we were at a club and they are a short friend and the dance crew came out and they couldn't see. And I said, oh, do you want me to lift you up? And they were like, oh, you know, but. I just picked them up and I held them up and they watched the dance for a bit and then I put them down and then I got home and I thought about it and I was like, I really, you know, I didn't give them a choice. Like I got carried away in wanting to do something good and fun for them. And so I sent them an email and I was like, I'm really sorry about that. I didn't really give you a choice. Um, I could have listened better and I will next time. That was it. Like I didn't want an answer from them. I didn't want a big... I didn't want them to feel like they had to engage in making me feel better, but I wanted to let them know that I had, I'd acknowledged that I didn't, I didn't listen to them in that moment because I thought that I was doing a nice thing and that was really uncomfortable and I didn't want to do it, <laughs> but I was like, this is the right thing to do. I need to. As far as, cause I know you do so much work globally. How would you like people to know about you and potentially work work with you and, and stay in touch? What would you like us to know? So I do run an Instagram account through the Sexual Assault Support Service. In all of our education classes for young people, we give them the opportunity to ask questions anonymously. We also ask them if they mind us putting them online and they opt in or out of that with a ticker across on the back of their post-it note. And then, so I take a picture of those questions and I answer them on Instagram. So you can see the types of questions that young people are asking in our consent education and respectful relationships classes. And you can see how we answer those questions underneath. Um, so I would love for people to get on board with that. I'm also writing a book based on those um, questions, sort of a sex ed book, how to talk to young people about sex and relationships, um, using those questions as guiding prompts. And I am available to speak at people's events anywhere okay. in the world. Um, I would love to come and talk to anyone who is up for How can they get a hold of you? And okay, I'm on That's LinkedIn. how I got a hold of you. So LinkedIn to reach out. You are an amazing woman. I so appreciate with how busy your schedule is that you said yes. I'm happy for the opportunity. Thank you. My pleasure. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise 
of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stage ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.